Talk Back Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Good morning. Welcome to Talk Back Gardening this Saturday morning. Good morning, John Lamb. Good morning, Deb. Good morning, gardeners. And I have it on very good authority. There's some mild or even warm weather on the way without any rain. Ooh. Darren Ray told me that, climatologist, <laughs> and I think he's going to be spot on. But the gardens, uh, despite the fact that it's been rather showery um, and uh, on the mild side, are looking good, but the, the growth is not very, very strong for this time of the year, and uh, that is affecting uh, uh, the plants. And if we have time, we'll just talk quickly about uh, its effect on uh, what you actually plant in the garden. But I want to also talk about citrus gall wasp later on in the program and the fact that you need to have a plan to control that wasp and that starts next week and our main discussion is about native bees and we'll be talking to uh, bee entomologist Katia Hogan Hogendorn <laughs> And uh, very, very shortly, and she's going to tell us a lovely story about the golden PB. Looking very much forward to hearing what Katia's got to say about that. And, of course, we're happy to take your questions on bees. Katia is an expert, so if you would like to ring up now on 1300 222 891, Katia will be with us for the next uh, 20 minutes or so, and thereafter we'll get back into general talk about gardening. The number again, 1300 222 891. Happy to take your comments on our text line 0467922891. I've got a couple of uh, October ABC Gardening Australia magazines to give away a little bit later and we're going to launch our October Rose Festival Rose Photographic Competition. So stay tuned for details if you love your roses and you love taking photographs of them. All of that lies ahead. But it is such a pleasure to have in the studio um, this morning Dr. Katia Hugendorn, bee and crop pollination researcher at the University of Adelaide. And John, I'm going to throw it all over to you. <laughs> Normally when we talk about bees on Talkback Gardening, we're talking about honeybees. But as a result of the wonderful research being carried out by Cartier, uh, we now know that there's a large number of native bees out there. And some of them are thriving, but others are in danger. And one that could be in trouble is the golden pea bee. And it's a lovely little uh, story about the importance of food and food and and habitat. But let's talk to Katia all about it. The golden PB, and first of all, welcome back to Talk Back Gardening, and in particular, welcome to the studio. Thank you for having me, John. Yes, and uh, so the PB, the golden PB, uh, just tell us the story. Why is it so important? Okay, so the golden PB is one of the about 300 species of bees around Adelaide. Uh, and it it depends on certain species of native peas that are flowering now. There's flower, still flowering, so you can still see this bee when you go out into Bel Air National Park or Morialta or Parawira. That's where it occurs. And it flies on the bitter peas. So bitter peas, the Latin name for bitter peas is Davisia. And... It only flies on the vizier. Its larvae only eat that type of pollen. 
So that native—that's a, a native plant. We're talking about the uh, the the pea that yeah. they actually feed on is a native. Yes, that is a native plant, but it is a native plant that we don't plant in our garden much. Well, we'll come to that in a, a moment. But you mentioned uh, if you visit these different sites, they are all up on the hills. Is there a reason for that? That is where that pea grows best. Um, and that's where the bee is. Yes, that is where the bee is. It's not a coastal bee. The golden pea bee, did it ever have a life here on the sub- in, in the suburbs? Yes, it would have, because along the creeks, the same pea species would grow. But it's disappearing from the suburbs. It is disappearing from the suburbs because it cannot find its food there. So, what can we do? Well, we can plant their food. And I actually did that in my garden in Eden Hills and 10 years ago. And seven years later, I saw my first PB. They can come back. They can come back. Right. And there are people that work with you and people that have heard you in discussions and, and give lovely little seminars and talks in different places. And they have discovered or gone to probably state flora and got themselves one of the, the native peas and started to plant them. Is that the way to do it, to try and work it? Yes, that's the way to do it. And you plant a small clump of those peas. They are um, medium-sized bushes. Uh, they prune really well, so they, they can look really nice, and they've got beautiful flowers. So if you've got a reasonable-sized garden, you could probably put, uh, say, two or three of them, put a little clump of them. Yes, yes, yeah. And what we're doing is we're promoting this at schools and at community groups, and I've given away hundreds of plants uh, already because this is a project that's funded by Green Adelaide, and so we're slowly introducing them via corridors back into the suburbs. There are a number of community garden clubs now, and they are growing their fruit and their veggie. Perhaps they also could extend what they're doing and start to say, how can we help our wildlife by planting more of our native plants? That is very important because more than half of our native bees don't even go to introduced plants and all our crops, nearly all our crops and fruit and vegetables are introduced plants. I'll come back to that point because that's important as to uh, how we look after our bees, particularly our our native bees. But you mentioned uh, a word, corridor. Um, People are planting here and and over there, but uh, there's a need for corridors to join them together. And you've got a plan. You're working towards that, which is fascinating. Yes. Um, I I have planted these 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 bees occur in Bel Air. And we have planted along Brownhill Creek to go down. But we're also planting at the at a railway station, Eden Hills Railway Station, and promoting this for along railways because we can do, we can do that. There are lots of creeks going through Adelaide. I live very close to Fourth Creek and walk along there with my dog virtually every morning during the week. Um, so is it possible to say there's the hills and we can sort of have the uh, plants like that and more native plants uh, uh, and they become the corridors to bring the native plants back into the suburbs and then all we've got to do is make sure they're planted in our parks and our gardens and home gardens. Yes. Yes, and road verges. 
<laughs> okay, so there's a lot of potential out there. Um, how are we going for questions? We haven't got questions on uh, the telephone, but if you'd like to ask a question, call through now on 1300 891. But we've got a few that are coming through on the text line. Katia uh, Hugen. I'm going to get this wrong every all morning. Dr. Katja Hogendorn is with us this morning, bee entomologist, and can answer these questions. Now, uh, Cynthia and others are asking, could you please repeat the botanical name of this uh, pea plant, please? Yes, the botanical name is Davisia. Now, there are three species, uh, and all of them are good. So Davisia, D-A-V-I-S-I-A, as it sounds? D-A-V-I-E-S. I-A. I-A. Davisia. Okay. okay. Right out. And certainly uh, the uh, Belair state flora would have that plant up there? Yes, they have. Yes. Yep. And uh, you'd find probably some of the specialist Australian native plant nurseries. Yeah. Seek them out and uh, they would know what you're talking about and, and have those plants there. Yes. Uh, we've got some questions on the text line. Uh, this texter says, on the road, I can't speak, but interested in native bee and would like to ask a question about Kwandong. We gave several in the sand dunes in front of our Pine Point shack. Question one, do dune Kwandongs attract bees? Uh, are they edible? Um, and so is, is that a, a thing for, for bees, Kwandongs? Kwandong flowers are really attractive to bees. Yes, it's a very good bee plant. There you go. We Na- learned native something new. Bee, b- native bee plants or Australian ha- or honey bee plants? Uh, honey bees are very generalist. They go to nearly everything, including our native plants. But native bees often only go to native plants. Could we explore that a bit more? People get excited when they see that there are bees working in their garden and they get concerned when there are no bees in their garden, but uh, they're honeybees. And you have uh, educated us, I think, to say that there are hundreds of native bees out there. What's the relationship between native bees and honeybees? They're all bees. They all depend on flowers. Uh, and they're all out when the weather is good and not when it's raining and cold. Um, but uh, And so for any bees, we need flowers. But our native bees evolve together with our native flora, not with the introduced flora that we brought in. So they are completely in tune with that part of our plant. So the honeybees are looking after the exotics... Uh, and we're destroying the native vegetation, and so that's not good for native bees. No, it's not good for native bees. And the pea bee is a very good example of this. But it's not only the pea bee that is affected if we don't have peas, because there is a beautiful story here about the donkey orchid. And the donkey orchid doesn't have any food for bees, it rela- it, but it mimics the peas and the pea bee will make a mistake and visit the donkey orchid and then it gets pollinia planted on its head and those pollinia (laughs) those pollinia need to be brought to another donkey orchid flower where they are scraped off by the pea bee Uh, by the pea bee (laughs) yes and so the donkey orchid relies on the peas to be present 
Because otherwise, no bee would make a mistake between the donkey orchid and the PB. So we lose, bee, if, if we lose the PB, then we lose the donkey orchid as well. Yep. Gee. As well as the native pea. Native we are getting a few calls through on the phone line, so let's go to them now. Um, our special guest in the studio, Dr. Katia Hogendorn. Uh, Sandra from Hackham is on the line. Welcome. Thank you, everyone, for coming, um, for being on the program today, Katia. Um, I just want to ask you, can, um, if you set up a bee hotel, but it's going to get a little bit more sun than recommended, can the bees cope with that? Um it depends on what type of bee hotel. If you have a thin uh, bamboo in tins, probably not. But if you have big blocks with holes drilled in them, then yes, they can manage that because it, the inside of the block is, is somewhat cooler, stays somewhat cooler. But it's best to put it in afternoon shade uh, because that is uh, that 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 really protects it from that that strong heat that we can have in summer, and of course the bee babies, the larvae are in that block, so it can't get too hot mm. in there. Some ten years ago, James Smith from For Nature uh, said, "John, can I uh, give you some blocks of wood that got little holes in them, and they were just hardwood." and they had uh, rows of holes of different size. And he said, can we put them in your garden out the back somewhere? Uh, and uh, this is when I was at St Peter's and had a great big block. And, and so he, he was observing those to see which size hole was best for the native peas. But I, I suspect that it depends on the bee, it depends on the hole. Yes, the bees come in different sizes and need different sized holes. And let's, while we're talking about that, the native bee needs, uh, not, no, I mean, not all native bees have uh, live in holes, do they? Could you just explain where a native bee uh, differs from a honeybee which has a hive? Yes. So native bees don't have a hive. They are solitary. And they produce um, their offspring, uh, but they don't make honey. And they don't have workers and queens, obviously. Um, more than half of the native bees nest in the ground. They dig a tunnel in the ground and they can nest together. So then it becomes uh, like an apartment building underground. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, but but uh, some nest in hollows. And they, in nature, they would nest in, in beetle bores in dead wood. And so the best thing you can do to make a bee hotel is actually, if you have a dead trunk in your garden, drill some long holes in that, and they will find that very easily. That's fascinating. We were talking to James Smith from For Nature about having holes in old trees uh, for hollows or habitat for, for birds and, and other wildlife. Isn't it amazing? It all fits together. We'll come back to more of your bee questions, getting a lot of them on the text line and a lot of them on the phone as well. The number one three hundred triple two eight nine one by phone and the text line zero four six seven nine double two eight nine one. Talk back gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia, and Broken Hill. Our special guest this morning is Dr. Katia Hogendorn, um, bee and crop pollination researcher at the University of Adelaide. 
let's take a look at the role of the honeybee versus the native bee. Many people think, oh, right, wouldn't it be nice if we could have our own honey? We'll install a beehive in our garden. And that's something that makes you frown a little. Yes, it does a little. We have honeybees coming out of our ears. Now, honeybees are very important for crop pollination, but they are also a major environmental pest. And they take up nest hollows in trees uh, that would otherwise be used by birds and mammals, uh, our native fauna. And they also take an inordinate amount of pollen and nectar out of the system. So if we take a honeybee hive, we're actually damaging our native animals. And that's not what we want to do. So it's better just to buy some honey from a beekeeper. Um, if, you, if you like honey, and, and not take a hive yourself. So leave the honeybees to the commercial operators, and from a home gardening point of view, uh, rather, as you say, go and buy some honey and, and try and start to look after the native bees. Well, Susan Loney, the president of the Bee Society of South Australia, has actually sent a text through saying, please remind people if they wish to get a beehive, they have to manage them, search for pests and diseases, not just collect honey. They need to be registered with PIRSA each year under the Livestock Act. Um, and, and Susan suggests, ideally, people should plant Indigenous plants native to the area to attract bees. So very much supporting what you've had to say there. Um, can I jump in with some questions, John? Ingrid is on the line from Burnside. Good morning, Ingrid. Hi, John. Hi, Deb. Um, and hi, Cardia. I'm just curious because I live in Burnside in the, the hilly bit south of Green Hill Road where our back garden used to be a creek and then you've got the Langman Reserve that I walk through regularly. In the last two years, we've had like a rash of these native bee plants just grow. We've got two massive ones in our back garden that we've kept. And they're both yellow. One of them's flowering prolifically at the moment. Kind of yellowy green colours with um, long, elongated, glossy kind of leaves. And then the other one's tall and um, kind of more spindly with delicate yellow flowers. And then I've noticed in the parks around here, because the council's been planting lots of natives, there's also like a yellowy-orange flower that's more bushy. So which one is the, the golden BP flower? Because when I looked online, you could just see the photos of the flowers. You couldn't see the photos of the plants. And so it's yeah. hard to know which plants. And how can I get information on the plants? Because so. Burnside Council gave away a bunch of plants a few months ago, which the possums ate most of. So maybe next year I will ask for one of those. Thanks, Ingrid. Katia. So the the Avisia, there are three species. Two have red flowers, and one is very prickly, and the other one, the the Avisia leptophila, which is the narrow-leafed bitter pea, has got yellow and brown flowers, quite small flowers. They're yellow and brown. And uh, there are other pea species, such as... Paltonia and even running postman is a bee species. Uh, they can also be wonderful for bees, but not for the golden pea bee. 
Okay, so those three uh, divisions that uh, was described by Ingrid, uh, will they all be suitable for the Golden PB? Yes, they are all suitable for the Golden PB. Great. Ingrid, before uh, Ingrid's still there? Yes, she is. Yeah, uh, uh, Ingrid, as a, a plant in the garden, how would you describe it? Are they sort of something you'd be happy to have with? or? Are they, are they, are they... Well, they, they just, like, randomly came out. And that's <laughs> one because we had... Um, there's a bunch of native lily pillies that have not been thriving. And then we noticed that this bush had grown on the edge where everything was dying and we left it. And the one with the glossy leaves is quite gorgeous. It's spilling over the edge of the retaining wall. So I think we need to prune it. But there's literally tons. It's sent off tons of little plants in the last few months. So I gave a bunch to the neighbours whose garden has been a bit of a valley of death and said, look, this grows on neglect. And we haven't given them any care at all. And then we also noticed the other one is about, the bushy one comes up about half a metre high and about a metre across. And then the, the, the other one is quite tall. It looks like it's going to grow into a tree. I'd say it's about a metre already. And I hadn't even noticed it until two months ago when suddenly it was covered in yellow flowers. All right. Well, the important thing... So they're yeah, quite good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, from that, uh, it's a kind of a plant that would fit in quite nicely if people had a large garden, and a native garden in particular, it's a kind of plant that would fit in there. It, yeah. Yeah. Hmm, okay. So, so neat, really, because we're in the bit of Burnside with all the gum trees where the possums and koalas brain poop and okay well we won't go down the possum track <laughs> no we've done possums already in the last couple of weeks but thanks ingrid really appreciate that information helen is from norwood now helen you'd like some information about um, what to do with a tree stump um hi katia i've got a uh, eucalyptus stump that's about 18 inches high in the old language and it's uh, question is what's the lowest level to the ground that you can put holes and how big a hole how big should the holes be so it's a really good question what we notice is that bees like to be up from the ground a bit so um i don't know the old language very well but about well, a meter about high 40, 50, <laughs> 45 centimeters yeah or, yeah so. so they like to be about a meter high on, ah, right, uh, okay. around that and, and holes, what kind of a bit uh, would you use holes between three and eight millimeters and okay. a variety is better because you'll get a variety of bees um and about about eight to ten centimeters deep Okay, so, so that, that stump might not be quite high enough to no. attract the bee population, but no. might work in other stumps. Helen, thank you very much. But, but I've got to say, uh, a bee hotel is very nice, but what is much more important is the bee restaurant. Okay, and that's what you're talking about, is, yeah. is having a block of wood uh, with holes in it, yeah. uh, and maybe you could sort of... Uh, attach it to a tree so that uh, you've got your uh, bird habitat uh, box up high in the tree and maybe sort of lower down you could put uh, uh, little blocks with holes in it hardwood blocks so maybe you could go along and buy a railway sleeper of red red 
gum and then uh, uh, slice it into sort of little blocks, drill some holes in it and put it in the garden it's half a, a metre high. It's a lot of work, but oh, it's really fun, worth worth it. Yeah, well, um, well, well I mean, we, we're broadening the scheme. There's more to gardening than tomatoes. But is what you're saying, Katia, it's not essentially just build it and they will come. You need to have the restaurant that they can pop out to go to 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 get the food that they need. Yeah, yes. and on that, it, it's not so much the habitat, it's the food, isn't it? Yes. Could you just explain why food is more important than habitat? Okay, so inside a bee hotel... A bee will put pollen and nectar and make that into a nice doughy ball and then put an egg on top of it. And the larvae that comes out of the egg will eat the pollen and nectar and become a bee the next year. So if a bee cannot find its food, it won't do anything with your bee hotel. Okay, and so that's the need for more native plants. It is. Matt is in Hindmarsh Island, on Hindmarsh Island, I should say. Good morning, Matt. Uh, Good morning. Um, the, the question I wanted to ask was, you know, we've got uh, we've got a lot of natives in our garden, and we've got one of those bought bee hotel things. But we don't have any bees in it, but we do have a lot of these black ants, which are quite vicious. And I was wondering if they deter the native bees. They do. They do indeed. It's one of the one of the natural things that happen. Uh, bee hotels get predated. And so if you have a big concentration, chances are that ants will find it. That's why I always say, make your bee hotel small. Okay. Thank you, Matt. Interesting question there. And uh, Ian is in the Riverland. Hello, Ian. Good morning, uh, uh, John and Deb and Doctor. Uh, I've got a row of peppercorn trees, about 14 of them. They're very large, probably uh, 20, 30 foot high. Uh, close together to make a windbreak, but it's hunt all year round um, with bees in it. Are they a honeybee or would they be a native bee? And would they be any good? I've got a lot of pumpkins as well. I'm in the Riverland. Uh, and uh, would they be good for pollinating the pumpkins or should I try and get other bees in? Uh, do your pumpkins grow well? Yes. Then you've got good pollination of your pumpkins. And uh, the pepper country is very attractive to honeybees. Um, I don't often see many native bees on it, but but there are, among our native bees, also generalists that will go to our fruit trees. So I'm working in apple at the moment, and I see native bees, ground-nesting bees, on the apple trees. Just very, very quickly, um, how effective are our native bees in pollinating our, uh, when I say tomatoes, they can self-pollinate, but say cucumbers and zucchinis and things like that? So our native bees are very important for our tomatoes, actually, because a tomato oh, they, they buzz. needs need to be shaken yes. to self-pollinate. And the bees, the native bees do that very effectively, but honeybees don't. So blue-banded bees are beautiful tomato pollinators. If you want blue-banded bees in your garden, you can plant um, not only tomatoes, but salvias they really like, and English lavender they love. They go to lots of introduced plants. So they are a generalist, and they will pollinate your tomatoes. We'll take one last bee question for Katia, Dr. Katia Hugendorn. Uh, it's from Gail in Salisbury Heights. Good morning, Gail. 
Yes, good morning. Good morning, Katya. I'm just wondering if kangaroo paws provide a food source for native bees. I've got a few planted and I'm wanting to, uh, you know, get my native garden sort of more diverse. I'm wondering if kangaroo paws are a, a native bee source, food source. I am not sure of that. Uh, So the the plot thickens now because um, our native bees here like our native plants from here. So what I always say is plant local native plants and kangaroo paw is from the East Coast, I believe. I was going to talk about Varroa mite, but there's perhaps a, a few little edges we need to just finish up on. Uh, Katya, uh, native bees, uh, do they only take pollen from native plants, or can you use uh, uh, exotic plants, such as, you know, as many of the daisies and things like that are out there for hoverflies and, and bringing back uh, uh, some of our predators, but um, what kind of plants do we need to bring back our native bees? So, all our native bees go to native plants. But some of our native bees also go to introduced plants. So, you can plant introduced plants for native bees, but not for all native bees. We've got specialists on banksia, we've got specialists on eucalypts, we've got specialists on peas. uh, And we've got generalist bees that go to everything. And that raises the question, how can we find, is there information yet available to home gardeners to say, right, if you want this particular kind of bee, you need this kind of plant, or virtually the other way around, these are the plants I've got in my garden, these are the bees I can expect if I look after it. Yes, yeah, well, you can find information about that. I've got a leaflet that is, when you Google Food for Bees Burnside, then you find my leaflet because it has got um, uh, the city of Burnside put it on their webpage. And that's fruit for bees. Food for bees. Oh, food, 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 food for bees. Yeah, okay, food, food, for, bees. For, food for bees. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Well, oh. look, uh, just uh, finally on the text line, Andrew Wallage is saying, see the Berry Barmer Landcare Facebook page for their bee hotel competition. They've just installed eight bee hotels around Berry and Barmer constructed by community groups. Andrew, thanks for letting us know about that lots of people asking what does the pb actually look like oh the female has got beautiful golden bands on the back it's about the size of honeybee a little bit smaller females got beautiful golden bands and the males have uh uh red hairs across their face and everywhere they're they're really stunning bee very beautiful and trevor says the barossa bush gardens in Nuriut for the next few months are an excellent place to see native bees many burrow into the ground there are blue banded on dianellas very easy to spot i'm conscious of a little book or booklet uh, on identifying bees was put together by a south australian lady i'm trying to remember does that ring a bell with you uh, yes, there is there is a book for for children uh, for, about South Australian yes, native bees. Yes, yes yeah. yeah. What's the title yeah. of it? And um, a, I believe it's South Australian native bees: a glimpse into their world. Okay, right. Okay. South so, Australian native bees: a glimpse into their world. Yeah, and pile into your local garden, your local library, and ask you know what kind of information books have you got on native bees and i have to say uh, lots of people saying katia do you have a website where can we go online to get more information about our native bees what direction would you like to point us in um hang on i'm working on it (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> okay, so when might we see something like Next that? Next month. Next month. And in the meantime, it, should people contact their councils? Do they have this sort of information at hand or is it only those that you've worked with? Um, most councils have some information about their biodiversity uh, and, and, their, uh, and, and you can also go, of course, to the Green Adelaide website because they really promote uh, biodiversity in the city. And therefore there are gardeners who are also belong to a local council or a, a community organisation who have access to uh, uh, an area of land and would like to sort of start planting native peas uh, for the golden pea bee. Uh, maybe they need to t- contact uh, their local council maybe if they're not part of the local council, but uh, that's where probably the next area of expansion could take place. Yes, yes, councils and, and other parts. Um, I was already contacted by the person running Centennial Park whether he could plant the the Davisia species that we need. That's a wonderful concept, yes. Oh, can't hear. <laughs> <laughs> We've only, I know John wanted to ask you so many uh, more questions. Only halfway through my questions and everybody else has got their <laughs> questions. You're going to have to come back into the studio for be, before too long. Good, I will do that. Thank you for being part of this morning's programme. Thank you. Thank you so much, Katia. Um, more questions on the text line than we can possibly put to Katia, but thank you for sending them through. Dr. Katia Hogendorn uh, from the University of Adelaide and Angela from Hawthorne Dean says, if you plant the native pea, how long before the pea bees find them? And I think Katia said seven years in her yeah, particular instance. In my garden, seven years, but maybe they're just around the corner. You never know. You never know. So give it a go, Angela in Hawthorne Dean. We'll come back to your general talkback gardening calls in just a moment. So call in now on 1300 222 Talkback Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. We've got so much to talk about this morning, but gee, that was fascinating talking about bees. Um, we are going to talk about citrus gall wasp. I've got a couple of uh, October ABC Gardening Australia magazines to give away as well, but we might quickly chat with Michael from uh, Grenworth. Good morning, Michael. G'day, Deb. G'day, John. How are you going this morning? We're great, thank you. Now, you've got some dwarf fruit trees. Which ones? Well, I've got a, a, a Pinkerbell apple, which is a, um, um, a Pink Lady apple, and uh, a Granny Smith, uh, which is a leprechaun, I think, and also a Setsuma plum uh, dwarf trees. So I've got three, uh, three trees. And uh, the reason why I've, I've, I've picked those three is because I'm replacing the Setsuma um, and the uh, uh, Pink Lady apple tree that I've got is now about 25 feet tall, it's just unmanageable. Um, so I'm looking at uh, reducing that in size as time goes by, but I want to uh, develop something a bit smaller that I can look after a bit easier. All right, so what's the question? Um, well, the Satsuma plum at the moment is, uh, has got small plums on it, and um, I've been sort of you know, you know, reading up on it, and I believe uh, it's better to uh, knock this, the small fruit off. It, it, I've only just bought it, so it's its first year, basically. Uh, knock the fruit off, 
and leave it to next year to develop the larger fruit. Yes, I would suggest that. Um, if you leave the fruit on, it takes energy, and what you need to do in the first year in particular, maybe the first two years, is develop yep. the framework of the tree. So off with their heads or off with their uh, stalks in this case, and uh, yep. maybe next year you'll probably find that there'll be quite a lot of fruit uh, Maybe just leave a few there so that you've got a, a small tree. You might have, uh, say, half a dozen of fruits there just to make sure that uh, uh, you can enjoy. And then after that, I think it's fair game. Well, I've still got a, a full-size set, Firma Plum, and, and this uh, a, a Pink Lady Apple Tree, so I'm not too worried about missing out on fruit. It's just, just a matter of getting in into the fruit before the birds do. All right, and just one final comment. If you're, thinking, if you're thinking of reducing the size of your established trees, uh, do that probably in November. Late November, early December is a good time to, to cut them back and then they'll come into strong growth and you, you need to sort of then tip prune uh, the strong growth and that way you'll end up with more branches but they'll be shorter and you'll end up with a shorter branch, smaller tree. Thanks very much for the call, Michael. Uh, Dave is in Allgate. You've got a question in relation to a mulberry tree, Dave. Hi, guys. Yes, I do. Um, I've got a, a black mulberry tree out the back of my place in Allgate and um, it's about a metre and a half tall. It's going okay. Um, it's got plenty of leaves and, and starting of fruit on them but all the leaves are yellow at the moment and I've sort of tried to put fertiliser on it because I thought it was maybe lacking in some fertiliser but that doesn't seem to have helped much and I was just wondering whether you had a suggestion. Yeah, buy some iron chelate right. and spray it on the foliage. Oh, okay, righto. I think you'll find that because the ground is cold um, and uh, the uptake of uh, uh, nitrogen and in particular iron, and iron doesn't move very much within a plant, and so you'll find that a lot of plants at the moment are quite yellow, citrus in particular. People have got pot plants and they're all green, and uh, if you spray the plants with uh, iron chelates, it goes directly into the leaves and gives you a quick fix. Uh, then you okay. need to uh, address the problem. Uh, how, better how nutrition. How often would I need to do that? Sorry? How often would I need to do that? Just once? or uh, If you find, yeah, one application, I think will, yeah. you'll find that they'll green up probably within, uh, you know, two weeks. And oh, right, if okay. uh, they're still pale later on, I, I think yeah. you'll find once the ground warms up, uh, the the plant will start to uh, be able to take up the nitrogen and uh, right. and uh, also the iron. But at the moment, iron is not moving around in plants and that's ending up with green leaves, uh, yellow okay. leaves. Thanks for that. Thanks for the call, Dave. Appreciate it. Uh, thank you to Tamara at Hackham West. Said she's already downloaded Food for Native Bees and it's fantastic, oh, that's um, which is lovely. Steve says he's checked out the Aussie Bee website, which also has a lot of information on it. Uh, so a lot of people um, have dived straight in and really enjoying it. But let's talk about citrus gall wasp. Wendy at Para Vista has sent through a text to John saying there's a lot of talk about treatment for citrus gall wasp is there a predator that control it it seems to her that nature is a bit out of balance when it comes to citrus gall wasps citrus gall wasp is relatively new to south australia it's native to the warmer climates and because our climate is getting a little warmer it's now surviving in south australia there are predators but we 
don't have many predators. Uh, they're here in South Australia, but they'll take probably quite some time to build up. And uh, again, you know, they're very dependent on having the warmer climate. Um, so as we get warmer, we'll get, probably get more predators. The most important thing is whatever you do, don't use an insecticide to control citrus gall wasp. Otherwise, you'll destroy what little predators there and uh, just delay the, uh, the establishment of them. Um, let me talk a little bit about citrus gall wasp. If you're going to control the problem, start spraying next weekend. We now know from the research from the Citrus Australia um, and the researchers that uh, they will come out on the thir- in, in Adelaide, and thanks to Greg Baker, entomologist uh, with Saudi, he gets the information from the Riverland and translates it to A- Adelaide. And so on the 30th of November, they'll start to emerge. They'll reach a peak on the 12th of November, and by the end of November, it's all over. They're gone. There's no point in doing anything. So the important thing if you want to control citrus gall wasp is stop the wasps from reinfesting your tree so they will emerge on the 30th and if you want to control them you need to have your spray on before the 30th which is next weekend probably if you're going to be a weekend gardener so um, and uh, the thing is use uh, i'm recommending because it's 95 percent effective is kale and clay kale and clay you spray it on the tree the wasp emerges on the 30th or starts emerging then and uh, the what it wants to do within emerging within a day of it emerging it mates and um, the next day, it wants to lay eggs. So within two or three days, it's all over from the citrus gall wasp. If you want to control it, you've got to be quick. You've got to get your spray on before they emerge. Kale and clay, spray it over the tree. It prevents or deters the wasp from laying eggs back into the tree and reinfesting it. Now, be careful because uh, it, it's white and it's used as a spray, a uh, 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 sun blocker for uh, on apples and things like that in commercial areas but if you've got citrus uh, trees and you want to spray and you've got a nice wall behind your trees uh, put a sheet on there or if you've got tiles on the ground put old newspaper or something like that on the ground so that uh, you can protect that but kale and clay is very effective it should be available readily available as citrus gall wasp spray from your garden center if you don't want to use kale and clay, your next bet is uh, eco-oil or pest oil. It's only about 70% effective. With kale and clay, you have two sprays. One just before they start emerging, which is next weekend, and the second spray just before the peak, which is on the 12th of November. So you need to be the week before the 12th. You work that out. <laughs> so that's if you're using a, an oil spray, you need three sprays two weeks apart. The first spray goes on next weekend, and then every two weeks, three sprays. That should give you some form of control. You can use sticky glue. Uh, a lot of people don't like it. It's very, very, very sticky. You've got to coat the, uh, uh, the galls with sticky glue, and as they emerge, they get stuck. So it works very, very effectively. And if you can, you've got small trees and not many, many galls. You can prune them off if you don't destroy the shape. So that's the way to control citrus gall wasp here in South Australia. Now, I think we might have a question on citrus gall wasp. So um, uh, let's just see what that is. Christine from Prospect is on the line. Christine, what would you like to ask, please? 
Um, do I still need to slip these trees? Um, sorry, sorry, I'm just I'll turn the radio off. The goals. Um, the goals. No. I've already, I've already kind of exposed them by slitting them with a potato peeler. So I've sort of taken the roof off their houses, so yes. to speak. Do I still need to spray it with kaolin spray? Because I can see all these little holes where I've already slit them. Well, okay. Well, that depends on if you've got a heavy infestation, I'd say spray. If you've only got a few galls there, I wouldn't worry about it. But... But if you are in an area where next door to you there's a citrus tree and it's got citrus gall wasp, you might control them on your tree, but they'll come in, they'll fly in from next door and they can move a, a quite a reasonable distance. They get blown in the wind. They're very small little wasps. So uh, if you're concerned that you really want to get good control, I would be putting on at least one spray doing it next weekend uh, if you've already sort of got reasonable control. I don't like the thought of using... Uh, uh, peelers to sort of uh, take the skin off it simply because you then weaken that branch and you then get new growth at the end of the branch, you get fruit on the end of the branch and the branch breaks. So, uh, I mean, some people want to do it and uh, it's what's recommended in Victoria, would you believe, is, is their control of citrus gall wasp is to use a peeler to sort of peel the, the little uh, galls. And I just don't think it's very, very effective. And it certainly doesn't stop the wasp from coming in from other areas. And this texter says kale and clay is a very fine light powder that can affect skin, eyes and lungs, be well protected when handling it. And I think that's that's a good thing oh, to do in the garden yes. at all times. Yes, use your mask. Always use a mask, whether it's uh, kale and clay, whether you're spraying, and in particular if you're using potty mixes, and if you're using organic fertilisers, particularly organic liquid fertilisers, make sure you're wearing gloves. Okay, yes, very important, because there are all sorts of nasty microbes in soils. Well, I was succumbed by uh, that problem and I spent 12 months very, very recently uh, with a major uh, problem of, of infested hand and arm. But I'll talk more about that because I intend to take a look at what's happening in the organic gardening trade. There is no uh, registration required. There's no sort of supervision of organic Products, whereas uh, other fertilisers, you've got to register it, and there's uh, uh, there are strong regulations there. With potting mix, there are regulations and there are warnings. Then there are no warnings on organic fertilisers. There should be, there needs to be, but I am going to do more homework and find out what's happening and then in, we'll the, hear in your the organic gardening. Yeah, and, and uh, uh, at that stage, I'll put in my newsletter, the Good Gardening newsletter, some horrific photos of my hand swollen up and it was because I didn't have gloves on uh, my hands. I use a lot of organic products and uh, I had a cut there obviously mm. and uh, I suffered, suffered mm. dearly. Just before we leave a citrus gall wasp, John, uh, do you spray leaves, stems or all of the tree? All asks of the tree. this texter. And what happens if it rains next weekend? Asks Margaret. 
um, the spray will stay on there for, uh, well, reasonable kind of, of showers, but that's why you need a second spray just before the peak, just before the 12th of November. We have got two ABC October Gardening Australia magazines to give away. If you would like to win them, call now, one three hundred triple two eight nine one. If you'd like to ask a question, call the same number as well. Talk Back Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Just a quick comment on the use of kale and clay. People are concerned about insects and uh, being affected by the kale and clay. Once the kale and clay is dry, it won't affect bees being pollinating, won't affect other predators and goodies. So uh, spray probably uh, in the evening if you're concerned about it uh, so it dries overnight and uh, you won't have a problem. Congratulations to Peter in Cuddly Creek and Nisia in Achunga have won our gardening magazines for today. We're almost out of time, John. We haven't spoken about soil temperatures at all, but I want to launch our our competition because uh, it is, you know, it's October and October is Rose Month, isn't it, here in South Australia. We've got, of course, the Riverland Rose Festival happening right now. We've got the 19th World uh, Federation of Rose Societies happening at the end of October and we want you to be a part of it. So we are launching today our Rose Photographic Competition. Now, one photo only one photo only your best photo yes so take as many as you like but pick the best and it can be uh, a flower a full in bloom or could be buds just about to open but a rose and in the next two weeks roses are going to be just covering beautiful (laughs) yes so how do they get involved with the competition okay so only one entry per person send your best in we won't accept multiple entries because john and i've spent so many hours in the past going through multiple entries you pick your best rose picture it can be as john said a bud a rose or a whole bush whichever you think is the best photograph of your roses. It is a photographic competition, but we would like you to provide a little bit of information about the bush, if you please could, and obviously provide your name and telephone number to us as well. We'll give you another razz up about it next week and we'll have something online as well. But you need to have your name, your postal address and your telephone number in it and you need to email it to us here at adelaideweekends at abc.net.au. And it's understood if you do put in an entry, then it should be available for publication in the Good Gardening newsletter. That's right. And we will also uh, publicise the winners and other photos here on ABC Radio Adelaide. So by the fact that you send it in, you're basically telling us that you're happy for us to reproduce it in John's newsletter or here on uh, ABC Radio Adelaide. Well, the competition won't close for until Monday week, so you've got a bit of time up your sleeve and we'll remind you again next week um, and we'll announce our, our winners uh, I think on the 29th we've got a very exciting uh, outside broadcast it's not at the Rose Convention but we'll be outside on that day so that will be lovely to do as well and John did you want to say anything about uh, soil temperatures just or- the fact that they're a bit like a yo-yo at the moment they're going up and they're going down I still don't have access to uh, soil temperatures from the Bureau of Meteorology we're hoping to try and get uh, finality from uh, what th- their action is, whether they're going to provide a service for home gardeners by 
by providing uh, information out of Adelaide. In the meantime, I'm tapping into Roseworthy, and the temperature at Roseworthy has been between 14 and 15 degrees, um, which is not quite the 16 degrees that people are looking for. That's a 9 o'clock temperature. And I'm also looking at the opportunity of uh, using other areas of sources of, of, of soil temperatures, and in particular looking at average temperatures for yesterday uh, what might be more effective than the 9 o'clock temperature. So stay tuned. But at the moment, the ground is cold. We're going to get a couple of weeks of reasonable weather, and I reckon the temperatures are going to go back and uh, above 16 degrees and probably will stay above 16 degrees once we hit the warm weather and that's time to put in your tomatoes the best time to put in your tomatoes and cucumbers and all the other lovely vegetables you want to grow during summer wonderful well it's great gardening weather this weekend john what are you going to be doing well i'm going to be again i've got more uh, potting of my little seedlings and uh, not seedling cuttings that i've taken but uh, just a quick reminder deb that next week we're talking roses with gavin wood and then uh, i'll say until next week good gardening